They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. With the bye, 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 bye. With the bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. But a bye, 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 bye. But a bye, 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 bye. Hey. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right, David Hellard, how are you? Very good, thanks, Jody Rainsford, very good. What's been happening? Um, some running, oh, wait a minute, I just need to sip some water in order to hit my water target this today on my Garmin uh, Connect app. Oh, it's got a water target? Yeah. How, how, does it know what's water and what's beer? <laughs> I'm thinking the two things are the same. Yeah, there's one way to test, isn't there? Things are the same. Same thing. Should be should be no different. And um, what is your target? What four pints? Uh, was it six liters or something? I can't remember. I don't actually six know what those are. Something uh, six liters. It's something ridiculous. No, maybe it's two liters or four liters. I don't know. What? Let me have a wait a minute. Where's the I haven't got my I haven't got my phone next to me. I've just got this, but I'm drinking. I'm I'm drinking. I got a question for you. Hello, yeah. listener, uh, to this Hello, episode listener. of Bad Boy Running, and well, uh, welcome, welcome to the Isle of Wight. If you haven't listened <laughs> to Derek Sandy's version of that on YouTube yet, we were talking about it in the last episode. Make sure you listen to it right now before we do anything else. Because if you're in a bad mood, if you're not feeling it for this episode. Listen to that, and you will be in the best mood you've been all week, guarantee. Oh, yes. Quite question for you. Yes, yes. One thing I've noticed, as I've, as I've started to monitor and become more aware of uh, uh, different parts of my running performance, one thing um, that is... Uh, sorry, not, how strong are your feet? Um... In, I mean, they they hold my body up most of the time. I mean, are they? Are you supposed to have kind of like sort of hardy feet? How? I mean, how? I I, I don't As know. If lo- this is lots a- of lo- lots of dead skin on them. Well, yeah. I mean, how? If you say, for example, yeah. How, how, I mean, I don't know how you measure the strength of feet, but I wonder if this is, this is something that might make a difference. I think I have got very, very soft feet. Feet or skin? Well, well you, can't, you can't detach the two, can you, really? Because if you... When was Where's, it? What, when what, was what it? have you done to, to figure this out? Have you been walking on eggshells? No, no, no. Okay, so we're, we're in Switzerland. I didn't tell you about this, did I? We were in Switzerland um, uh, a few weeks ago. We, uh, they had this thing, they said, we went to tourist information, they said, what are the things to do for, for children and families and stuff like that? And they said, ah, oh, there's a barefoot walk in Siviez. Go to Siviez and it's a barefoot walk, it's like half an hour. And I was like, all right, we're not going to do that. So, like, literally an hour later, we're at this barefoot walk. Um, and everyone's going, yeah, let's do this barefoot walk, it's a great idea, blah, 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 blah. And so I thought, yeah, it's just going to be a walk. I've never really heard of it. Have you ever heard of something like this before? 
I mean, along a beach, but... Yeah, okay, so not... this is along a beach, this is up a mountain, okay. So I was thinking, okay, so what they've done is they've, put, they've created a walk that's all on, like, nice soft grass and stuff, you know, so that you can take your shoes off, you can walk down by, like, a, a river or something, and they, they, they sold it, like, there's this, like, lovely picnic area by streams and stuff like that, as you expect in a typical alpine scene. So you take your shoes off and stuff, and you start walking with it. Straight away, they put you, they make you go through a, a bloody thing that's got... Um, tree bark, pine cones, um, all sorts of stuff that you're like, what? What is? What's going on here? It, this is. They've invented this. I mean, the kids doing this. Yeah, as the well. kids doing it. They thought it was hilarious. They thought it was brilliant. And you're like, I don't, I don't really understand what's going on. They're like, okay, there's some stupid English people. Let's get them to do a barefoot walk because that's the sort of middle class bullshit that they'll kind of buy. There's not a single person from around here who would do something ridiculous. And then it proceeded to take us. What I would suggest was not a barefoot walk was a walk that most people would need hiking boots to be in. But I don't know whether it's because I've got really soft feet. And it took us through, it took us through a car park as well, which was a bit weird. So we went maybe, car park maybe. gravel, um, like on a path that was, uh, that was quite stony. There was like some mud, it was any, everything. And I was just wondering, am I, my, are my feet just really, really like soft and weak as well? Well, I maybe you were going on a foot walk where you might see bears, <laughs> and you've got it completely wrong. That would be very different in Brighton. No, I mean, running, <laughs> running, but that's true. In fact, um, but I think walking anywhere barefoot it hurts. I've I've, I've so tried running it, barefoot. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I think the only way to really test how strong they are is how many minutes. Do those little feet nibble down on your feet when you put them in those weird swimming pools? Oh, those fish! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the only—that's the true test. But how I much? Thought, how much do they eat? Because I don't—I don't have my—I have like um, sort of uh, like hard skin around like the big toes, but my my feet are soft as anything. Like you, they look like the feet, I was going to say the feet of a ballerina, but a ballerina's feet are, are hideous, aren't they? They're like the feet of someone that has literally never done any work ever. Um, yeah, but my my feet always look fairly normal. But I just the, the, I, I wonder how, I wonder if they're just really weak, as well. If the I just I I wouldn't know how to go about strengthening my feet. And your kids were all right. They they can walk over like hot coals or something. There's there's something about children. They walk they walk over um like gravel and stuff in the you know in the in the in the drive and everything. And I'm like, what what are you doing? You're insane. And they can walk. I I can't. I'm, my feet are just. It I, might be also to do with the actual weight per inch. <laughs> but genuinely, I, yeah, I don't maybe. know what the weight ratio is, but it could be significantly different. That's right. It could be that. It could be that as well. I had to bite. We, we, we were in we were in the Isle of Wight um, and we kept going into the sea and stuff. I was thinking, what? It, it, why is it hurt? Why does it seem to be hurting me more than everyone else? Like just walking on all this like all this like stony stuff and everything. It, you do that weird walk where your basically your spine disappears and you're just like this wobbling like mess and it just looks embarrassing. So I had to go and buy some uh, some water shoes. And is, or is it that you've got weak feet or is it just that you are just a bit pampered? I don't know. I, well, one thing's going to come from that. I, I wonder whether um, uh, I wonder whether my feet need strengthening and also toughening up at the same time. I'm going to say yes, just to see what you end up doing. Because <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do. How do you strengthen? I just, it, well, I, I had, um, I had plans. Maybe put sandpapers in soles. <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking, um, 
just trying to be a bit more walk around barefoot a bit more in order to just like like toughen the the, the skin up. But I don't know what the what the benefit would be. I don't know. It just feels as though my feet are really weak. You know, is this your new? Feeling? Is this your new plan? You've got a training plan <laughs> to go back to Switzerland and walk the barefoot walk in a record time. <laughs> no, I, I I couldn't do it in record time. No, no, that's not my plan. I was just wondering. I wonder whether there's anything about feet. We never really talk about feet. We talk about calf muscles, quads, hamstrings. Um, when we do talk about feet, it's around um, plantar fasciitis or an ankle injury. We never talk about foot strength, whether, is that, whether that's a thing or not. Yeah, and, and actually, I, whenever, whenever I've seen ultra runners who do a lot of running, their feet do look normal. They don't look that well, built up. If, you, if, you, if you're surrounding your feet with um, the kind of material in the hokers and stuff like that, it's you know you're, they're going to be cushions as anything. You're not going to you're not going to have, you're not going to suffer from that. The only thing you're never going to there's something. I remember when um, uh, I'm not going to mention it when I was training for a uh, an event in the desert. Um, before that, um, there were loads of different things that people were talking about, and it was before really people were talking about it on Facebook and stuff like that. But like about how to toughen your feet up and about putting like. I can't remember like what this dog, like, dog wax or something like, like yeah, just to strength, strength, like, strength like what's it called? Toughen the skin up. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, one thing in order to, in order to make sure that you don't get blisters and stuff like that, of course, which, do, which doesn't work. You just get blisters under it. Um, but also, you know, things are well about making your feet stronger and making your feet more, um, uh, more resilient, uh, in those environments. So it's just like that. No one talks about that. That must, is that all complete rubbish now? Or, is that, that just people don't have to worry about it because we've got these big thick sole shoes that you know means that that foot strength is foot strength even a thing? That's what, that's all I'm asking. I'm just wondering. It was just a, a hypothetical question. Do do bad as does anyone know? Is is anyone out there who is a very proud owner of incredibly strong feet? <laughs> and how do you measure whether they're strong? Yeah. <laughs> Other than going to Switzerland, I don't know. But, um, I don't know. I, I know the two things. I know that like the two things are different. Like being able to run bare. Well, I don't know. Maybe you must have to be able to run bare feet. You must have good foot strength as well. It must be able to run without a shoe. Must be better on your foot than not running without a shoe. Well, no. so what did I say? But, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not confused here. No, running without a shoe yeah. if, as your feet's naturally supposed to be must be better for your feet as make it make your feet stronger more naturally than running with a shoe i'm not saying that's what you should do but yeah. if you have mastered barefoot running it must strengthen your feet somehow it must, like it must make your feet barefoot rather than barefoot shoes well yeah bare, well i mean even if barefoot shoe i mean like, like like i said last week most of my shoes are pretty much barefoot shoes now anyway but it, it's got a there's got to be some benefit. I'm sure when like Vibram and all that were talking about barefoot running, they kept going on about foot strength and, and they kept saying all these additional benefits and stuff. Um, but is foot strength not a thing or is it? I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know why I've suddenly decided to think about this. It's just something that came up because of this. It, I was wondering whether I have weak feet or not or whether that actually matters. Well, too bad as let us know. I've, I've never heard about it. And uh... do you feel you have weak feet or do you think your feet are strong? I, I mean, I, sh- I assume I've probably got strong feet compared to non-runners just because of what we do. But no idea. 
I mean, when going to the MDS, I didn't have any, didn't even worry about blisters, and I never get blisters in general. Probably had three blisters in my running career. Normally, it's to do with, I think, once when I got some insoles um, for orthotics eight years ago. You ever other had a, times, you ever had a stress fracture on your foot or anything like that? No, nothing like that. No, no. not that I know of. Plantar fasciitis, nothing like that. No, no, all those things have been good. Yeah, but from uh, from feet strength. To, I'm nicking it into sheep. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, do you know Innovate have been slowly kind of introducing graphene to a lot of their trainers? Oh, have they? Is that good or bad? I mean, I don't think they're doing it to make shoes worse. I mean, that would be quite an unusual no, marketing no, no. toy. I'm talking about for the environment, seeing as you're Mr. Eco Warrior when it comes to shoes. Ooh. Actually, I think this is good for the environment because, there's, there's, I mean, hopefully most people know about graphene it's the, the single layer of, of carbon that's unbelievably strong um and if we can actually manufacture it properly would dramatically change the world but um yeah there's been they've they've now put it in their mud claw and I, I mean it's good if it does mean that the material is um is more durable because it means you don't have to buy trainers as often and which is good for the environment um but to try and get some pr around it They've created something called the Frog Graham Rounds, which, which actually is, it sounds pretty good. Um, this oh, wait guy a ben, I've heard this. I think I might have heard this. Go on. So this guy called Bob, uh, sorry, Ben Abdelnor, who's just set a new record. So apparently it's 40 mile swim run challenge. Did it in 10 hours, 55. So it's 15,000 feet with 18 summits and you then do four long swims as well it doesn't say actually how long the swims are um but that's that's quite a cool challenge i mean the bob graham is is so big it's it's a real undertaking but something like that the good i I think that'd be quite fun to have a go at apart from the swimming bit (laughs) yeah but it would be and actually that would be really interesting to know how that affects your feet for for running that much because it's still quite a lot of running and and whether you have to change trainers every single time or whether you use one pair of shoes and you know how do you dry them well enough and, and does it actually just wreck your feet yeah hmm. where is it, sorry where, so where so where is it held is it held in lake district yeah yeah so it, it takes on a lot of the same peaks yeah I assume it goes into uh, Guinevere or, you know, Coniston or whatever the, the big lakes there are. Uh, something similar to that. Guinevere. 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 Why did I say Guinevere? Guinevere. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it goes to Guinevere as well. I hope it goes to That's I mean, the, that... se- the secret lake. The secret lake that no one knows about in the Lake District. That should be the name of the lake, shouldn't it? <laughs> it should. It's a great name of the lake. So I've got some uh, I've got some exciting OCR news for you. Okay. Remember your 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 enemy. Oh, I do, from... do you know what? <laughs> I was just thinking about him the other day. How come? Summer nuts. Uh, I was I was thinking about yes I was thinking about nuts I was thinking I, I was I was literally on a what's it called running on the Isle of Wight thinking that bastard I I I could have I, I'd have gone around that fourth lap if he hadn't have cut that time off. So they're now coming up with the third edition of the UK OCR um, Association. 
What? Third time lucky. Yep. We've got another one. They certainly do. Um, and I'm not really sure why. <laughs> yeah, so to many be... associations. You'd think it was like the biggest sport in the country. Yeah. And and just to just, just so people Well, res- wrestling has fewer associations and boxing has fewer associations, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> so I, I, can't remember, I can't remember exactly what the details are, but the first one, it was rumoured, well, two individuals involved definitely left the country. It was rumoured under financial irregularities. The next one, Jody incident, and also not paying people um, prize money and various other potential financial regularities. So thought they're going for the third allegedly, time. Allegedly, allegedly, all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've what they've done, and how would you approach setting up an association if? Um, if you're trying to get confidence in people and you're trying to kind of build it up from afresh and what would your approach be to like, would you go big? Would you go small? I would go, uh, well, you try, you try and make it as official as possible, wouldn't you? You try and, um, you try and do it big. Official. The thing is, I, I think before, and again, I'm not massive, just from what I've seen, it always came across as very amateur. I'm doing this from, um, my bedroom type thing. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd go big. I'd go big official, um, that kind of thing. What is, is that what they're doing? So they've decided to, they've set up what they call commissions, which are kind of like committees. So they have, <laughs> this is sounding very, very dodgy. <laughs> so they have a UK board. Yeah. They have a UK executive team, a medical commission, a development and technology, a technical commission, a youth commission, a finance committee, a competition and safety commission, and a partnerships commission. I mean, I, I always think it's great to, to have as much talking as possible. And as little. <laughs> but like, does even UK athletics have that many committees? I, I'm not sure. I, the thing is, UK Athletics is a, uh, a highly professional organisation, as, as we're quickly finding out. Um, I don't think they'd be able to organise that many committees. I do, why do you... What, the thing is, the problem is, when as soon as you start bringing out committees, it always points to some kind of um, getting people in to do stuff and getting paid for it. Or, or I don't know, when you're just like trying to get your mates in. You're like, oh, yeah... Um, I want everyone, I want all my mates to be in my business with me or in this thing I'm organising. So what we'll do, we'll create a, a social committee and we'll create um, this uh, a committee for doing um, uh, clothing or whatever. And you're just trying to, you're just trying to like load it up with your mates and stuff, aren't you? But I don't, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing. I, I don't know if there are any more, I don't think, know if enough people in the UK still do obstacle racing to fill the positions. <laughs> So this is my worry. Like, as, just as a point when even at like Judgment Day has just gone under as well. Um, yeah, and they've got the thing is, there's a lot of outstanding positions on those committees. So maybe do batters, some get in there. Why not? Actually, we know they're lovely people. We don't want to, we don't want to um, ruin what they're creating. But they, at the moment, they have open positions for the chair and the deputy and the treasurer of the finance committee, which is probably quite important to have. <laughs> As an organisation, to have someone in 
same they've got interim positions still open for competitions and safety commission yeah there's a yeah interesting way to approach it but, um, <laughs> surely you'd surely you'd get the people together who are going to do it and that rather than i tell you it's a very top-down approach isn't it of um creating committee positions and then going ah oh, we haven't actually got anyone to fill them <laughs> why don't we create them in the first place then just yeah just get what do you what do you need for a committee like that sure for a for an organization like that surely does it have anything why and how does it get its money well it probably i mean maybe this is why they're doing it because i know for example there uh, if you want to be seen as the official association by sport england which is how you then get open to wider funding yeah they probably have strict criteria in the same way that you know, Bad Boy Running setting at our club, we're having to have various policies oh, yeah. and it's all elected and um, it's all hopefully as uh, as open as it, as it can be. So maybe it, it, that's been forced upon them by them so they oh, can yeah. then unlock and maybe there's almost this paranoia of it in the past not being seen as official enough that they're like, right, we're now doing things completely transparently and getting everyone involved but um yeah it'll be interesting to see how that goes and and also what is it needed still that's the but i thought before we get into our guest we've had a great chat in the facebook group which um i think delivers some gems so uh joanne collins joanne adams said running my first hundred mile this weekend what's the worst advice you've got for a hundred miler first timer now to begin with that's pretty ballsy to <laughs> just before you're doing your first hundred miler, basically ask people, you, how can you make me feel as bad as possible about what I'm just about to do? Well, to be honest, she's asking for the worst advice. She's asking for the, the, the uh, this, this would be classic. Um, you're running your first marathon. What's the best advice from that? That's almost like the name of the runner's world stage at the London Marathon Expo. What's the best advice you can give someone who's doing a marathon tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. What's the best about about all their training this event? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So at least at least she's going about the right way. What's the worst advice? Because you can ignore it. It's not as if if they're giving good advice, then you can implement it. I think the first one is good. Dave, David James Paul. It's important to go fast early and bank time. Also puts the shits up the people that are going for the win. Ten k pace is a good place to start. <laughs> I mean, it's it's gonna it's gonna get you out and it's gonna get you warmed that's, up, isn't it? That's a Mike Bisson tactic, isn't it? Mike Bisson tactic is to go hard for the first fifty miles, you know, be in third position and then blow up and end up in hospital with an amazing photo post race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that is good actually, and and also they might a lot of races do issue photos of the start of a race so if you don't want to have to pay for your your um your photos they're going to publish that one anyway so at least you're getting a freebie <laughs> that's an amazing way of thinking that's so true <laughs> now um wendy wendy pedlow gave some some very good advice don't drink any water it just adds to your weight there was a period of time where i tried to train myself to run as far as i can without drinking water <laughs> Because I, <laughs> I don't know why. Because I was thinking I'm going to try and go further. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to try and put off drinking any more water for another couple of miles to see how it felt. Um, and how I think, far did you get? I, Straight to hospital. I, I, I think I think 
I think I managed to run like quite a long distance without without drinking water before. Um, and I don't know what I don't know what what I was trying to achieve by it. Looking back, it didn't make any sense. One thing I did I did like though is that when you you have finished running, drinking something, it, it was an amazing feeling. It was like a weird like addictive high type thing of not drinking while you're running. So when you do drink afterwards, you would feel amazing. I don't know. I think that says a lot about me rather than about. I mean, if you can get for a hundred mile without drinking, you will feel <laughs> that person will feel incredible. <laughs> And kill you at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's get another one. Let's get another one. Um... Grow a beard. This will help your time no end. <laughs> <laughs> this is but the thing is, right? Simon Stevens said this is just it's perfectly captures the optimism when you you start out running and the optimism you got. This is going well. I can easily finish by 2 a.m. and be home in bed by 4 if I keep this pace up. That that sums up the highs and lows of optimism that you have in a 100-miler. Oh, this is going perfectly. I'm going to be finished in no time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing you can do is go in not knowing if you can do the distance. So best be sure you can by running the route the day before. Even better, run from finish to start makes for easier travel logistics, so a double win. <laughs> Yeah, it's clever. It's clever. And you can leave little treats on the way as well. So go double, double sensible. Go fat adapted the whole day. Calories are overrated. <laughs> but do better. What is your worst advice for running a hundred miler? Your first hundred miler. And, and actually, and you're, not allowed, know how... you're not allowed to cheat by looking on real buzz for the actual advice for hundred milers. <laughs> and also, we don't know how Joanne did. Did she finish? Did she, did she survive? uh oh yeah that's a good point <laughs> yeah but um we now have one hell of a guest for people don't we Jodie? it is one hell of a guest in fact i don't know if we can even mention who they are in in this intro part i mean for, for a change jody has written the intro to the guest so uh i mean i don't want to build it up too much but you did say you're a copywriting expert and this is going to prove to the world why they should use your copywriting services. Well, the, the thing is, copywriting is all about benefit plus curiosity. And so, you know, the benefit for you to be able to listen to this next interview is that you're going to get some great insight. You're going to be inspired. You're going to absolutely um, dial into exactly what they're saying. You know, this person has huge credibility in running and someone that you really want to listen to. Um, but... There's a lot of things that they say that you may maybe didn't expect to hear from someone like this. So take it away, Nick. Da, 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 da. So, do batters, we've got an absolute treat for you. Um, you've probably heard of Zach recently. Um, not only was he American champion already for the hundred miler, but he broke the 100-mile world record in, well, a record that I just don't think many people thought was possible to beat. Um, it's been around for, well, I can't remember even how many years, but we've got him on the show today. So welcome the new 100-mile world record holder, Zach Bitter. Hey. Hey. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me on. And um, I can fill your audience in a bit. The previous record was 17 years ago, and the one before that was 25. So... Um, I don't anticipate mine to stand that long, but <laughs> it's, it has a history of kind of a long time frames between, uh, between uh, 
it going down. So I mean, interesting you say that. Are you, are you looking over your shoulder already? <laughs> no, I mean, I just think like the sport of ultra marathon running has taking a has taken a fair big leap forward in like the past decade and it seems like it's gotten a lot of its momentum kind of from the trail cohort which is pretty cool to open up Mm. like those opportunities and experiences for people and where in north america anyway if you Mm. look back into history the road running section of ultra running historically had been more the area where some of these real fast marathon guys would maybe maybe target and the the latest kind of surge in ultra running has gone onto the trails and not so much on the roads and the mm. track and things like that. So I do think that the talent is in the sport to go under 11 hours uh, for sure. And it's just a matter of who gets interested and decides to take a crack at it. So, uh, you know, I, for one, want to see a really, really fast 100-mile time in with a 10 in front of it. So if that's me or someone else, I think that's cool. I think it's going to accelerate compared to what it has historically, though, in terms of how long these kind of records stand. I mean, I think that's, as you say, because so do bad, as you don't know the time, um, Zach's time was 11 hours, 19 minutes, which is quicker than seven-minute mile pace for the whole the whole 100 miles. And I think that's what, when when you hear about, when I heard about the record going, you're so you're so used now to everything being almost gauged on the time it takes people to run with thousands of meters of ascent on trail but when like the actual speed of your time hits home it's it's, it's mind-blowing to be honest um i mean do, do you think road running is getting and track running is getting the kind of um kudos and even the kind of sponsorship and the kind of support that that trail running does um, yeah, I think it probably depends a little bit. Uh, I mean, there's certain events that certainly that get a lot of momentum behind them. And Comrades is the big example of that. Comrades mm. is the biggest ultra marathon in the world numbers wise, I believe at around, I think they're actually up to 24, 25,000 participants yeah, at this right. point. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you just see some really, really stout performances there. Uh, so I think it's also the most competitive one. So if you look at that, then you know, Comrades probably takes the cake every year. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of high caliber trail events. And I think it's just a little harder for the average runner to kind of wrap their heads around like what it takes to say, you know, run in the 19 hour range at Ultra Trail Mont Blanc or to break 15 hours at the Western States Endurance Run in some of these, these other races that aren't quite as clean cut. I mean, when you look at like my record for hundred miles, mm. sometimes you'll say like, Oh, 11 hours, 19 minutes. And people, the general runner maybe doesn't know how to translate that into terms of whether it's fast, slow or in between. But when you break it down to say, I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty sure they know as far. I mean, have, <laughs> have you, have you told it to someone and they've been like, well, yeah, but I can do a mile in, in five thirty. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where people start to connect the dots, I think, is when you preface it like, well, that's essentially four marathons at 258 or like 32 and a half 5Ks in the 20 minute range. And then people can start kind of like taking something that they've experienced, like their 5K PR, their marathon PR and that sort of thing and start saying, oh, okay, now that makes sense. Yeah, you went that pace for that long. Uh, it's, It's probably easier for them to connect the dots for that than it is to say like, what it takes, like what I said before, to run under 15 hours at Western States or in the 19-hour range at Ultra Trail Mont Blanc and some of these other like kind of yeah. big, more 
more competitive 100-mile trail distance events? Well, I think actually even with those events, to a certain extent, you're not even – some the people talk about when the records go, but actually if – if, if I know good runners who've, who've done these events, I'm like, where did you come and who did you come next to? And and actually, almost our perception of, of how good people are is based on how they did against other people who we know how good they are. Because mm-hmm. it's so hard to actually translate it into a, a linear line, you know, what, what is Western States? And you mentioned in Comrades, but that's still got 4,000 metres of ascent one year, but only 2,000 metres of ascent the next year, but an extra two three miles so yeah it's um and well what i really want to talk about because you've you've really smashed this record by 11 minutes and as you said it's been a long time since anyone's got close and and your previous hundred miles not like you've been doing thousands of them but how have you have you approached it and how have you you've been have you been successful sorry successful yeah you know i think it's really just uh staying like consistent and staying patient with the whole process and in general i think with endurance running as a whole you know you just have to be patient you can have really good training blocks you can have you know really good workouts popping up for long periods of time and have it not manifest on race day uh and then you know you you have a day like i did at the pettit center and you start to see some of that work kind of pay off so to speak but, uh, you know, for me, like I got interested in just seeing how fast I could run 100 miles when you remove as many variables as possible back in 2013. And, you know, getting interested in that particular like subset of the sport, it gave me a lot of opportunity to try some different things in training and figure out kind of what worked for me and what produced quality results in the workouts um, and in some races as well. And ultimately i think using that and building off of it and also kind of trusting that it's telling you what you think it is in terms of what kind of times you should be targeting is is the most uh the cool thing about the experience in my mind i mean it was essentially almost a six-year journey to kind of get to where i did uh two weeks ago Mm. and uh you know i don't doubt that every you know season during that six-year journey played a part in kind of putting me in a position to do it both physically and mentally uh but it's tough to wait that long you know and i think a lot of times people don't and they never do find out kind of what they're capable of or where their their best is at because you know waiting six years is a long time to kind of stay at the grind and put in the big training and stuff like that and uh it's it's kind of a tough sell sometimes i think but you, I mean, you say you, you talked about these variables, variables and removing variables, and, and this six year. So in 2013, what were you? If, if you did, you think at any point 2019 would be a sensible target, or is, has how how have you removed those variables, and how have you realised that six years is is the time to wait? Yeah, I mean, in 2013, I probably thought the reasonable target was 2014. <laughs> mm. So it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I went into the race in 2013. It was at an event here in Phoenix, Arizona called the Desert Salsa's Track Invitational. And I, I had only completed 100 miler to date at the time. But I got interested in running flat because I was training on a lot of flat terrain just based on where I lived. And I had just mm. done a flatter 50 mile and kind of was exposed to, oh, that's kind of a cool cool event when you can really specify your training towards the environment that you're going to race in. So when I got invited to try out the Desert Salsa's track invite, 
uh, I was just looking at kind of what what would be a what would be a kind of a target goal and i was fortunate that one of the one of uh, a guy in the sport john olson had actually just recently broken the 100 mile american record and became the first american to break 12 hours in in 100 miles so uh seeing him do that i thought well you know i think i can maybe maybe do better than that or run a little faster than that so my target was kind of the american record that day and my my reasoning or I guess approach was I had just done uh, a 50 miler more kind of off the cuff more or less I had already done kind of my peak race for that that part of the year mm. but felt really good and just wanted to gauge kind of how quickly I could recover and 13 days later jumped into this flat 50 miler and ran five hours and 12 minutes so to me that told me like well if I slow down to say 545 I should feel pretty comfortable at that point. And then if I can, you know, even positive split it by 15 minutes, you know, you will run like say six hours and fifth or 14 minutes or 13 minutes, I could squeak mm. onto the American record. So I was kind of thinking like, okay, that's, that's doable. Like my, there, there's, there's enough evidence to indicate that I'm capable of it. And I went in with that goal. And then, you know, I, when I got it, I ran 1147, I 11:47 I think on that day. So uh, that kind of got me interested into like a lot of things. First of all, like, well, what was what is the hundred mile world record? I don't think I even knew going into that <laughs> that race what it was. Uh, so then when I found out that it was 11:28:03, that kind of became the next target to kind of go after or to base my training and and race pacing off of when I would do some of these flat hundred milers. And so. Um do you think now then that because you know we've we've broken this barrier and you've you've clearly if you look at the races you've done you have focused more on the flats on on the fast and the speed do you think that that is going to be necessary for people from now on to really excel at this distance yeah to meet their own personal like max potential i think so i think uh you know if you took someone who's just like a rock star on the trails and the mountains and uh, bring them down onto a track or on a flat stretch of road or something like that. It would be in their best interest to put in a solid training block in that environment mm. leading in. Um, I think there's guys talented enough that could get down by, to my time or lower without doing a whole lot of that work. But uh, if they were to run as fast as they possibly could, mm. then they're going to need to put in that specificity in order to really get the mechanics right to it. Uh, just get the pacing right and feeling out how to structure like, you know, stopping for bathroom usage and what fueling strategy is going to work best in that environment. Because uh, ultimately, sometimes these things come down to just how efficient you are. You know, if you find yourself stopping a bunch of times to use the bathroom or losing your stomach because your fueling was off, then, you know, mm. you could be running much faster than me, but have a slower time just because you wasted a bunch of time not moving for for whatever reason. So you you talk about the kind of specificity. What when the dynamics? What what structure did you put in place that helped you? And and what kind of hints or things did you overcome to actually bring that time down? Yeah. So like I get very specific with this type of an event because it's just mm. one of those things where it's really easy to do it. The unique thing about some of these trail events is you can get very specific if you live in the right area, mm. but to get exactly specific to the course you're going to do, you almost have to live on the course. So 
or have access to it anyway. So when you're doing something on like a, a track like I'm doing, you know, everyone kind of has access to that. So like I can actually go on a 400 meter track and do long runs and workouts on there and really dial that environmental specificity directly to it. And that's kind of appealing to me to have that access so readily available. So when I would do it, I would usually, uh, I've done it differently for different events, but usually I would try to start at the very minimum, start skewing my long runs and back-to-back long runs onto a track surface so that when I'm working on dialing in race pace intensity and working on whatever fueling strategy I'm going to use and things like that, I have a really good uh, idea of kind of what environment I'm going to be in. Mm. And the other advantage to that too, and it's a bit of a balancing act, but uh, getting yourself in a position where you can mentally wrap your head around being on one of these short loops for that long. So it's one of those like kind of positive and negatives where you have as much information as you want. When you're out there doing these events, you can check out a screen that shows your lap split every lap if you wanted to. So you can really kind of eat up your mental bandwidth if you're just hyper focused on looking at every lap split and hyper analyzing like why did I slow down a second that lap or why did I run that lap a second faster and that sort of thing. So getting just comfortable with that environment and having a strategy that's not going to like tax you too much mentally and working on different things to put yourself in the right mindset to almost remove yourself from the environment you're in because it is the most monotonous environment you really can do one of these events on. Mm. And and say, because my instinct would be to spend as little time on the track <laughs> as possible so that um, it's almost partly you get the excitement for race day. But as you mm-hmm. say, I think I'd find it too harrowing an experience to have to be, I'd, I'd dread the long run too much. And, and even, I'm probably doing half the miles you are, but even running a route that I've done twice in the last two weeks I can find mentally challenging let alone having to to go to a track so I mean other than focusing on those those details and that analysis is is there do you try in almost meditative way are you listening to music are you listening to podcasts yeah yeah um all the above in terms of distracting myself. Uh, I think I think you were right though. Like there is a balancing act. Like if you get on the track too often, you're probably gonna sh- you you might show up on race day just thinking like all oh, this again, and then have mm. to be fighting an uphill battle from negative self talks, so to speak. Um, so there is a bit of a balance there, I think, and that's probably gonna be individual how much time you can spend there without exhausting your your mental energies from being in that environment, but. I mean, you, you hit it on the head there. Like it is kind of like a meditative or flow state you try to get yourself in. Uh, if you catch yourself, you know, counting down from say 400 and two and a half laps, which is what hundred miles would be on a, a traditional 400 meter track, you know, you're going to, you're going to just never be in a position where you can kind of get out into that meditative flow state and pass the time and eat up big chunks of, of time and mileage without really noticing it being there. So uh, the way I like to do it is I'll kind of calibrate by a range of split times that I like, that I th- feel is achievable. So for this last event, the track was 443 meters. So it was a little longer than a traditional track. Uh, but I, I came up with 
my, my race plan was that I could probably fall between a minute 48 and a minute 52 per lap would be a good target range. So 148 mm. would be like, you know, absolute nothing goes wrong. Top end performance, like, like almost, uh, in a, like a, a perfect day, so to speak. And then 152 would be like, that's the, the bottom end of what I feel my fitness should produce. So getting kind of in those within that, that framework was the goal early on. So I'm, I spend the first maybe eight to 10 laps or so just calibrating, just watching it every lap and getting it kind of comfortable with what my effort, what my perceived effort is at that kind of split range. And then once I get that, I start not paying as much attention to the screen uh, and just running based on feel. And then I'll spot check it. And if I start drifting out of that parameter of 148 to 152, then I would recalibrate and just kind of go back and forth with that. So I think really like if you can get yourself in a position where you can hit those splits that you're looking for pretty easily, then you can afford yourself a lot more opportunity to put yourself in a different environment mentally than you actually are physically, which is a good spot to be when you're doing some of these monotonous events. And how come the track's what, 448 meters? Yeah, so it's actually kind of an, an interesting setup. So the Pettit Center is in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where, and it's actually the Olympic training facility for that area. Mm. So it's an amazing facility. They built it for the to for winter Olympic stuff. Actually, uh, training they have like three hockey rinks and a speed skating rink in there, and that was what they built the the complex for. But when they were doing that, they thought, well, we may as well put a track in here since we have <laughs> such a big. In, uh, arena and they put a track in but the the tightest they could make it was 443 meters uh without kind of pushing in onto the speed skating rink so they kind of took what they had left <laughs> for the track more or less so it, it couldn't be a nice clean 400 but uh it worked well so i'm not going to complain does does that mean when you upload the the run to strava you get a lot of haters who are saying <laughs> oh, i've looked at how many laps you've, you've only done 90 miles or yeah yeah. Yeah. It is kind of funny. Uh, someone did comment on that. They said, uh, it's, uh, am I, they were, they're curious about how the math was working for that. And, uh, the interesting thing though, since it's indoors, I wasn't able to use GPS. Uh, so I, oh, I did upload goes. it to Strava, but it was just manual entry. So it didn't look as nice as an outdoor one, but even those I've noticed, uh, I'd have to take some of the more updated models out to a track, but historically, running loops around a track isn't perfectly accurate on a watch. So yeah, like I terrible. would, yeah. yeah, I would usually overestimate how far I'd go by a little bit at least. So it, uh, uh, even those are a little, a, a little erroneous, I guess, if you're looking at it from that standpoint, but you could see how many laps at least on that. And if you're, if you're actually training on the same track or on a track so much, does that create certain problems to the balance of, the right, um, the muscle to the right hand side of your leg versus the muscles to the left hand side of your leg, because you are actually constantly, well, not, not on the back straights, but on the corners, you're constantly at an angle. Yeah. And I think that's where the, a little bit of, uh, versatility does help out. So this last training block I did for this particular event, I, I went to the track, I think maybe six or seven times total. And most of them were long runs. But, uh, I was doing a lot of runs on other surfaces too. And, and I think that kind of balanced things out a little bit. So I think if you go out and do the track every day and that was just like your, 
only workout environment, you'd maybe mm-hmm. suffer some imbalance issues. But if you're only going there for part of the time or doing maybe just one training block or one training cycle in that environment and then going to a different place, you'd probably be fine long term. Uh, I do think it's valuable to get on a track and do that for the mechanical reasons on race day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take It can take a toll on you having to turn tight like that all day long. And if you're not used to that, some of those stabilizer muscles are going to probably be a little more irritated than they would be normally. So when I get real kind of serious about an event like this, most of them, they'll switch directions every four hours. So mm-hmm. if I'm doing a 12-hour, I know I'm going to be going counterclockwise for eight hours and clockwise for four hours. So when I'm structuring my long runs on the track, I'll actually break it down to kind of be in that kind of ratio where I'm turning counterclockwise two-thirds of the time and clockwise one-third of the time just to expose my body to kind of that that kind of level of mechanic. And, and I assume there are other people running with you out there. Yeah, so – Um, that's actually the only variable that I haven't been able to control to date is Mm. usually there's not events that are targeting specifically a hundred miles or specifically 12 hours. Mm. There's, there's a lot, there's been a decent amount of growth in timed events in the United States, but they're usually 24 hour events. And then sometimes they'll get ones that branch out even further than that, where they'll go like, they'll add like a 48 hour component, a 72 hour component, a six day component. Um, but usually I'm on the track with people focusing on either 24 hours or 48 hours or something like that. So given the nature of how long they're planning on being out there, they're going yeah. significantly slower. And uh, track protocol is the person passing goes around on the outside. And that just adds a little bit of extra distance from being in lane two a lot. And and I would guess like on the race I just recently did at the Pettit Center, I was probably averaged closer to lane two than I did lane one, just based on how often I was either in lane two or lane three going around people. Yeah, I mean, so, how many overtakes a lap do you, would you estimate approximately? I mean, it's obviously hard to do, but yeah, you reckon you do. It was pretty rare that I had the inside lane on the turns. And mm. there were, it was probably about equally as rare that I had to go to lane three. So my lane one and lane three probably balance out pretty close to lane two. And then lane two made up most of the rest of it. So that's where I come up with kind of right around maybe lane two would be the average. Uh, It's maybe a little easier on the track I was on because the lanes are a little tighter than your traditional one. I don't know Mm. how, how much narrower they are, but they are a little more narrow. So whether that means I was like kind of on the outside of lane one on average or right on the line is anyone's guess, I, I suppose. But it is interesting to think about because everything else was perfectly calibrated. I mean, the temperature was about 60 degrees inside the Pettit Center. Obviously, you're you're removed from any wind, rain or any environmental mm-hmm. type of things that can impact it. You have aid as often as you want it. Um, people there the whole time to kind of keep you motivated. Uh but yeah, the hugging lane one the whole way would have likely saved me probably somewhere between eight to 10 minutes, maybe if we're, if we're looking at it as like just inside of lane two. So, which is, which is crazy. If you think about other running races, you know, if you think about the hundred meter world records, for example, and um, eight minutes isn't a huge amount versus 12 hours, but it's still quite a lot, actually, you know, it's, it's over 1%. And one percent in the hundred meters. If uh, if the same bolt could t- you know go a tenth of a a second faster, that's a massive leap. Yeah, and yeah. So it's 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 got to be the only race really where it's it's a consider the 
the field is a considerable factor in the time. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, you know, I've just more or less grown to expect it because, like I was saying, it's, there's just not a lot of opportunities to do these things mm. on on a specific 100-mile target. Uh, I think those type of events will start popping up, but, uh, you know, and, and that might be part of a push to get the time even lower. We'll just mm. removing that variable as, as well. Uh, but you know, there's also other things that can flare up. Like most of these things I've done have been outdoors. So sometimes you get really great weather doing it there. Sometimes not so much. And that can make a big difference too. So part of it's just kind of working with what you have. Um, yeah. And actually it might be the, the fact that you're constantly have someone to, to aim for to, you're not on the track by yourself. It might mm-hmm. actually be a benefit mentally in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think having people there is helpful just to see other people working hard and other people chasing goals and things like that is definitely motivating. So yeah, you, you may gain back mentally, what you lose physically from, from at running a little bit further. Uh, so it is, it's, it's not something to complain about necessarily, but it is cool to think about. Cause when you look at mm. my time of eleven nineteen and you start thinking about, well, what next, you know, you can start thinking about, well, if I can get a situation where I am lane one the whole way, and, you know, I can shave a few minutes from that, a, a little more efficient on stops and then just get a little mm. faster, a little more bold. And, and, you know, then I'm looking at, you know, in the low 11 hours or just under 11 hour range. And that's kind of a cool target to think about. Yeah, I mean, th- that's the trouble with something like 1119. The next lovely yeah. round <laughs> number is 1059, which is quite a way away. I mean, it might be achievable, but it's still a lot to try. And if you're trying to think how many seconds a mile you have to speed up, it's, it's quite a lot. Yeah. And I think a couple things would help. One, having lane one, like we talked about. Mm. Two, having a slightly more efficient day than I did. To put that in perspective, I stopped three times for right around four minutes. And that's pretty efficient. I usually don't count on being that much better than that. But I have had an, an event once where I stopped twice for like 60 to 90 seconds total. So there is, is potential that to grab a stops or is that um, food breaks or is that stretching or... Uh, bathroom breaks usually i don't typically stop for food uh just because it's so easy to have it just handed off to you on a track like that and that's one of the reasons you you go to an event like that is so you can Mm. minimize like aid station breaks where whereas you know like some of these trail events there may be an aid station that you know you need to restock on on something Mm. and there's no crew access so it's just the reality of that particular event that you're going to spend some time in there not moving but with this, there's no excuse to do that, really, if yeah. you're looking to just – I mean, you can if you want, but it's going to come at your own pace peril, I guess. So uh, uh, having that crew access every couple minutes makes it easier to hand off a bottle and not not skip a beat. So I try to take advantage of that. Uh, but, yeah, bathroom breaks are usually the only th- reason that I would stop if I'm having a good day. And um, – yeah. So, so, say, I, so say you take on the hundred mile again. You're down to you're coming in at ten fifty nine pace. You need one more toilet stop. You gonna take it? Absolutely not. <laughs> 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 if I can help it anyway. I mean, it's uh, it, it, I mean, it, it's funny to talk about that, but it is like it, it couldn't be the difference really when you think mm. about that. And for me, it likely is. I don't know, like, um. I don't know that my top end potential gets me much lower than just sliding under 11 hours. I think mm. I can. I, I've, I've really like from my training, when I look at my training and I kind of assess what I think I can wrap my head around doing, I'm mm. pretty confident I could average 640 per mile for a hundred miles, 
given the best, most ideal situation and then a good day. So that puts me at 11.06.40, I believe. Um, So that's not too far. Then I just need to kind of put in the work, so to speak, to shave off another six, seven minutes. And then I'm looking kind of at around that time. And I mean, that's, you know, predicting the future and who knows, I wouldn't, I'm not going to like necessarily be disappointed if I find out that I'm not capable of doing that. But if you, I think the thing you need to ask yourself after having a race like I did is like, Mm. well, one, can you go faster? And two, do you want to try? Because with these things, I I think you have to go in like being hungry to want it, or it's not even, don't even bother because like, it's just, uh, you're not going to be able to push past that self doubt and the boredom and all that other, all the other things in the later stages of the event, if you don't really, really want it badly. So had I finished that race and thought to myself, that is the most I can handle for a hundred miles. That was my best performance that I'll ever have on an event like that. There's no sense in going back. I don't really feel Mm -hmm. like doing it again. Then I would just turn to something else and focus on something else and consider that kind of uh, a box checked in terms of things I wanted to do in my life. Um, but that just wasn't the reality when I finished my mind immediately went to, well, how much faster can I go? So that tells me that the motivation and the desire to kind of see if I can improve on my own time is, is still there. What's maybe different now is I'll probably be a little more picky about when and where I do it. Uh, just cause the thing I do think is like for me to have a performance like I did at the Pettit center, uh, and, and improve on that, I'm going to need, need some some, some help, I guess, in terms of minimizing all the variables or the last few of the variables that, that I haven't controlled so far. So that just means maybe not taking a stab at it on an event that's might be less than ideal, mm. uh, or, or re recentering my goals if that appears. Uh, and, and some of that's, I think you can, you can kind of go into some of these events with, with two kind of game plans, so to speak. Whereas mm. if I, say I picked a track that was outdoors and uh, it ended up being the reality on race day that it was going to get 10 degrees warmer than I thought. And now all of a sudden running a fast hundred miles off the table, but uh, you know, putting up a PR for 24 hours or something is still doable given the reduction in intensity. Then, you know, I think that would maybe be the mindset going into some of these in the future. Because on this one, you finished and then you actually ran through and went for the 12 hour uh, record. So you did about just under five miles in uh, in about 40 minutes, which isn't significantly slower than I'd imagine the pace you were, you were feeling like running at the end. So were you were you running your like last 10, 20 miles thinking you were doing four or five miles extra? Yeah. I mean, if I would have, if I dug deep into my conscious, I would have probably found that there, but really Mm -hmm. I think the move in an event like that is try not to think past that first goal. And Mm -hmm. because you don't want to like subconsciously begin to like lose focus on what you're trying to do. So I always just tell myself, let's get this fast hundred mile done. And then assess what's going to happen after I finish that. So, uh, in this particular event, I had some motivation to stay out, I think, because in 2015, when I ran 11 hours and 40 minutes, I didn't. 
Um, part of that was just, I think the reality of the day I was reeling pretty hard the last 20 miles of that day. So going on was in my mind, uh, a non, uh, an unnegotiable, uh, whereas at the Pettit center, I was actually negative splitting. So like the momentum was going to my favor. So when I got to hundred miles and finished that, I mean, the, the energy you peaked too late for your finish in some ways. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I don't know. I don't know if I peaked too late or if, uh, because I mean, when you look at my splits, I came through 50 miles in about 540 and like, I think it was like 38 seconds or something like that. And mm-hmm. then the second 50 was 538. So in terms of like negative splitting or close to even splitting, that's about as good as it gets. Uh, so I don't feel like I necessarily left anything out there on the hundred mile. Uh, but you know, I also slowed down almost two minutes per mile <laughs> when I came through a hundred mile or maybe not quite that much, probably close to a minute and a half per mile. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that might just be a reality of the relatively low intensity of some of these longer events where, you know, you can shift down a gear in intensity and stick out a little longer. But had you asked me to maintain say like 640 to 650 mile pace, Mm. that next 40 minutes that would have been I don't think I would have been able to do that and if I had then that would have been indicative that well maybe I should have been running a bit faster and the other thing to think about too is just like this idea that like you ever leave it all out there so I mean in my mind leaving it all out there basically means dying as you fall across the finish line (laughs) (laughs) the perfect end to a race (laughs) yeah 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 so uh um I feel like that's kind of the mental component. Like how much can you override that central governor that's trying to get you to slow down or stop? And the more you can do that, the better your results probably going to be. And then you just got to be careful about not being too aggressive in the early stages where you just drive yourself into the ground physically. And there's no mental power that's going to keep you out there at that point. Um, which is kind of more like what I had the situation I had myself in, in 2015, it was, uh, you know, and I used that event as a lot for a lot of motivation in this last race too, because I got to mile 80 at that event, like in a really good spot split wise, I had needed to average, I think seven minute pace for the last 20 miles to break the world record that day. And I wasn't running seven minute pace at that point. I had been sliding back. So I gave it like one more kind of push to get my pace back Mm. down for like a mile or two. And then it just was, I had no more like mental bandwidth to keep it so i ended up running that last like 15 to 17 miles or so at like a 730 to 745 pace i think uh and then i ended up with the american record but not the world record so although i had a good day i had a pr i broke the american record you know i missed that target of 112803 or faster on that day so knowing that i kind of had that opportunity that day with just 20 miles left that was definitely a mental motivating factor to kind of not let that happen again. So when I did get to mile 80, it became almost like equal parts. I can wrap my head around 20 miles. I did the training to be able to do this. Uh, and a little bit of, I got something to prove here that I'm not going to fall apart like I did in 2015. And so, so, um, a few quick fire questions to, uh, to kind of get through the, the little details that we tend to ask every guest when they do these type of things. Um, I mean, in terms of your training, what kind of mileage would you say you're, you're doing weekly mileage? 
Yeah, so it definitely periodizes throughout the year. I typically average about 100 miles a week overall when you add in all the the big builds and the mm. recovery days or rest days or post-race off-season type stuff. So what that usually ends up meaning is like for an event like this, I had a, a four-week build mm. near the end before my taper that had three weeks of, of – uh, of build and then one kind of deload week where I scaled back on volume and intensity. And th- that four weeks was 130 miles, 150 miles. The deload was 75, and then the final week was 150. So final week was 150. Yeah, and then and then I went into taper. So okay. I think that put, that put me three weeks out at that point. So I had plenty of time to kind of absorb that going into the race itself. And um, within those miles, I mean, what? kind of percentage would you say you're doing at your you know, just under seven minute mile pace and what percentage are you know are you still doing speed work as well yeah so the way i kind of structure my training is i do like all the systems of training like you would see in any endurance event from like 5k to a marathon with mm. you know short intervals to like um, threshold work mm. uh, like more along the tempo tempo pace type of strategy and then like kind of the long run and the easy days and all that other stuff it just differs on where i'll place it so i'm always operating under the um the compass of the stuff that's most specific to the race pace and race day should be done closer to the race and the things that are least specific to race day should be the place placed further away from the race during the training plan so whereas you might see short interval stuff near the end of like a 5k training plan you might Mm. see those in the beginning of mine yeah. So I always start off with a real strong kind of aerobic base by just working my pace down at a given heart rate. And then once that kind of plateaus, I know I kind of have the the foundation there. Then I'll start doing like some short like VO2 max type workouts for a few weeks. Uh, then I'll move into kind of focusing on threshold work where I'm doing a lot of stuff at that intensity. And then once I get maybe six to eight weeks out, I start running mostly everything at or maybe just under goal 100 mile pace or effort and there'll be maybe a day or two during the week where i feel really good and i do like a little bit of threshold work even in those later stages but i'm never going to force that at that point uh so that block i told you about before almost all of it was at race pace or just under i probably averaged around race pace or close to over the course of the entire week, uh, I had a few runs where I would just do like um, a second run in the afternoon that would be a little slower, uh, but I was more or less just trying to kind of expose my body to running at varying points of the day. Because even with mm-hmm. a 12 hour race, you know, you're going to be there from, you know, I think it was nine in the morning to nine in the, in the evening. So I do think it does kind of have a perhaps maybe mostly psychological but i think there's some benefit to just knowing what it feels like to run at varying points during the day Mm. so if i felt good enough and not too beaten up from the morning session i'd go out a few times to to do that and those tended to be a little slower but on average you know my long runs i think my average long run pace came out to around six and a half minute mile so i had a little bit faster a little higher intensity than than race day for that but not by a whole lot i'm still more or less hitting the same system uh but that's really kind of things like weights and, and plyometrics as well or yeah i mean i focus mostly on kind of core mm. work posterior chain and mobility stuff 
you know, one thing I identified in 2015 was that I, my posterior chain was what was giving out on me the most. If you see, I have I've said some pictures of that race day where like you see my form in the beginning and it looks mm. like my form normally would. And then by the end, it almost looks like I'm leaning back. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you just, you start to get certain areas of your body worn down or fatigued faster than others. And you can identify what was the limiting factor for you on that day to a degree. So for me, I wanted to address some of that posterior chain strength. So that's what I'll, that and core strength, I'll work on quite a bit in the gym throughout the training plan. And so then, does that, does that mean you kind of look to your, your body positioning, realize which muscles were, were there for weak and strengthen specifically those muscles? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was long enough ago. I can't remember how I got on the path of identifying that posterior chain would be worth it. I, I talked to someone who was, uh, you know, an exercise physiologist and mm. was telling, saying like, these would be some good, some good things to do to kind of strengthen those areas and, and maybe hold up a little, hold your form a little longer, even in the latter stages of a long race like that. So I've been pretty good at working that into training throughout the course of the year. Um, mm. And my form, I think, was basically identical at the beginning and the end of this last one. So uh, whether that's just more time in the sport or that that helped out is, I guess, anyone's guess. But um, it seems to have worked well. And and then when, when it comes to things like nutrition, then, did you change your nutrition dramatically from 2015 till this year? Uh, not a ton. I mean, I've always, since about the end of 2011, I've followed more of a high-fat diet. Um mm it gets a little tricky to people. Cause I think when people hear high fat diet, they sometimes think like strict ketogenic or zero carb, mm. um, which isn't necessarily the case for me. There's phases of the year where I'll go super low kind of ketogenic or zero carb for a while, but those are more or less off season or recovery days. And, uh, you know, then when I start getting into kind of my peak training, I'll, I'll bring back some of the carbohydrate, uh, not to the levels that you'd see most endurance athletes doing, but mm. you know, it's also like when you think about it, it always gets kind of complicated, I think, as people want to look at, say, traditional endurance athletes from like 1500 to the marathon at the Olympics and look at their diet and then kind of project that onto everybody else. And there's a couple of glaring mistakes by doing that. One is, well, I mean, if you're running ultra marathons anyway, but the big one is just like, well, I'm racing at a completely different system running a hundred miles than I would be running the 10 K or something like that. Mm. So much lower intensity, I think, uh, allows for you to rely a lot more heavily on fat as a fuel source versus a carbohydrate. So I'm not looking to take any tools off the table, so to speak. So mm. I'm not going to just demonize carbohydrates and eliminate them altogether. But the way to maybe think about it is if you think of an, a traditional endurance program where you're probably going to hit 60 to 70% carbohydrate, um, you know, 20, 25% fat, and then the rest protein, you probably see the fat and the carbohydrates flipped, flipped on the other way for me. I'm hitting that kind of 60 to 70% of my intake from fat and then having that smaller portion from carbohydrates and then the protein's probably fairly similar although i probably eat a little more protein than the average endurance athlete uh that's just what's worked well for me so and, then, uh, and on race day what type of things then are in your toolkit yeah so that's where i that's probably where i confuse even more people but uh here's the way i look at race day race day uh you can take the leanest endurance athlete on the planet and they've got enough body fat to match that energy system on race day. They can always replace it after if they lose more than they wanted to, or they lose, mm. 
you know, they lose it during the race and want to gain it back. Mm. Uh, the, the energy that you're going to potentially, or the fuel tank you're going to potentially exhaust is going to be your glycogen stores. That's the small fuel tank. That's the kind of rocket fuel tank. Mm. Um, so I try to be careful about how often I tap into that tank. Uh, I want to tap into it for specific workouts and I want to be able to tap into it at varying points during a race. So I'm looking at it kind of from that system where I've got this fuel tank on board that I won't, that I won't exhaust. So there's mm -hmm. no sense in trying to refuel that during the event itself. Cause it's just teasing digestive issues at that point, if you can, um, so then the glycogen stores are the ones that I'm going to potentially deplete. So my fueling, the one that I'm going to do during the race is going to be carbohydrate based, but it tends to be lower than what most people are taking in because, you know, I've kind of slid that scale of my fat metabolism, carb metabolism ratios mm. further over from my just general diet. So for so me, you, that you're avoiding gels and things then. Uh, you know, I'll use like a, a powder that I'll mix in with my water mostly. Uh, mm. I it, I've never for a hundred miler done that exclusively, but for this one, I basically did, uh, for whatever reason, that's just the way it worked out this time. Uh, I usually target 20 to 40 grams of it per hour. Uh, since it was cooler in the coolness facility, I wasn't as worried about potential digestive issues from heat related stress. Mm. So I skewed higher and I just basically hit 40 grams an hour where I would do 20 every 30 minutes in a bottle of water ranging from eight to 16 ounces. Um, and it's a, it's a product by this company named X Endurance called Fuel 5 that I use. And I really, I've really liked their stuff uh, since I've kind of started racing with it. And uh, that's kind of what I did. I was, so I was just kind of sipping on small amounts of carbohydrate throughout the course of the day, relying on body fat for the fat fueling, and then just kind of trying to stay topped off with the, the carbohydrates, which is uh, where I ended up kind of playing everything out on, on this particular race. And are you in your tempo runs? Well, I guess not the tempos in a hundred mile pace runs, your longer training runs. Are you also then practicing drinking that drink as well? Or is that where you're actually still getting your body using your fat? Yeah, that's a great question. And I usually, what I'll do is I'll kind of break my long runs near the end of my training block or my mm. training into two categories. And one is like, okay, I'm going to test to see, I'm going to do a field test on kind of how good I am at running on, uh, you know, no fuel. So I'll mm -hmm. do a long run where I'll just take in water and electrolytes and kind of gauge how my energy levels are. So if I feel great, then, uh, then I know I'm fat adapted enough. I don't need to try mm -hmm. to push that lever further over. Uh, and then the other one, the other long run I'll do. So think, if you think of this way, if I have six long runs left, I'll break it mm. into three and three where one will be what I just described. And then the mm. other three will be practicing specifically what I'm going to do on race day just to kind of get an idea like, okay, to remind myself what it feels like to take this in, what I can expect yeah. from it. And just to make sure it still works for me. Ah, uh, interesting. Um, so something else I wanted to talk about, cause obviously been doing a little bit of research which is it's quite unusual for us in the podcast but um what i love about your race cv is compared to a lot of people you've had you've had a few dnfs and quite often people if they've had a dnf don't put it on their cv because there's almost this shame attached to it um so i love the fact that you're well i love the fact you've done them i love the fact you're embracing them so i mean talk us through your your view to why you've done that yeah, you know, I think um, I think it's interesting because, like, 
when I when I just think back about kind of where my mind went during this last race, like mm-hmm. I've had I had experiences that I refl- I mean, we talked about it a little bit when I spoke about kind of how I viewed that last 20 miles. But, you know, had I not had attempts that didn't quite go the way I wanted or there was room for improvement, you you don't necessarily have those things to kind of reflect back on and those those guiding principles to make improvements. So mm-hmm. I look at I look at bad races or failures as a learning experience, and they they just tend to offer up more opportunities to find a way to improve then when you have a really good day, it's easy just to say like, oh, okay, well, clearly I'm doing what's working. I might as well just carry on rather than like really dig deep and try to find, okay, well, here's a spot where I can maybe still gain a little bit, or here's a, an area where I can adjust or change and, and maybe gain, gain some, uh, a few minutes here and there or something like that. So I always kind of look at it like that. And I think it's, uh, it's uh, I, th- I try to think of it kind of like math. <laughs> when you think about like math, you can fail 99 times, but if you get it right on the hundredth, you know how to do it just as well mm. as you would have if you had gotten it on the second time. It just might take longer. So when I think about like racing and not hitting the mark you want, uh, I don't look at it negatively and I don't let it like kind of beat me down. I look at it as a way to kind of build and learn. And, um, and really then at that point when you can kind of put it in that scope, then it's just how interested are you in continuing to do the the activity that you're doing. So uh, for me, you know, I'm still very much interested in racing, doing a variety of different courses and types of events. So I'm going to kind of keep keep that process in place until I no longer feel like I want to do it anymore. And and what's going through your head when you are reaching that point of DNF? Because for example, we spoke to Robbie Britton, who's um, on the British hundred mile. That's uh, like 24 hour race team. And his fir- his very first DNF was, was almost a crushing disappointment that he really struggled to, to, to process because I think so many people when they race, um, even if they're racing for time or even if they're racing for a win, there's almost this attitude that if you can move, you finish no matter mm-hmm. what it does to you today tomorrow next year if you can do it you do it and if you don't it's because you're weak um I mean, so when when you're in the position where you choose to dnf and, and maybe it isn't choosing to dnf all the time but there clearly must have been some times where you've chosen to dnf what what is going to your mind up to that point yeah i mean i think um i think the way to think about it is you don't necessarily want to put yourself into a black or white situation where it's like on one side, death before DNF, where you're getting mm. it done. You know, I don't care if I break my leg and carry it to the finish line type of a mentality mm. versus, oh, if everything's not going perfect, if my A goal is out the window, I'm just going to bail out. Um, you know, Those are the two extreme sides of the spectrum. I think there's a nice middle ground there where you can be honest with yourself. And if I'm like, say, 70 miles into 100 mile, and something's going wrong and I can salvage my season by dropping out there uh, or potentially avoid long-term injury by dropping out there, you know, I'm going to try to be as honest as I can with myself and make sure that's the reality before doing it uh, versus like I'm 70 miles into this 100-mile race. Mm. I feel terrible. I'm not hitting my, my primary goal, but I can still have a decent day or I'm not going to do any more damage by finishing you know, then it's like, you may as well push to the finish. Uh, cause I think there's some value in that too, because mm. you can, 
you want to avoid getting into this mindset where like where the first sign of adversity you give up because that you're you're really never gonna kind of and I think that's the fear with, with with doing with having DNFs mm-hmm. is that it becomes too um, it becomes too normal. So mm-hmm. the next time, I mean, is that a worry? Do you, do you think do you think you've you've lost any edge by being more open to the option of DNF? Um, I don't think so at this point in my career. I think like you can. You you can get into that mindset and people talk about that where it's like, mm. oh, I just DNF three times in a row where that kind of becomes your default. Mm. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, it just comes down to being honest with yourself. And, you know, when you get into that position, you need to just ask yourself, like, well, first of all, why am I doing this? Because mm. if you're just going out there to DNF, uh, you know, I would say maybe find something that you enjoy, enjoy a little more. Mm. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you can also just, I mean, there's, if you, you spend long enough time in the sport too, you're just going to have stretches that seems like nothing can go right for a little bit. And, uh, you know, you might have a stretch of DNFs where you have a few in a row and, you know, there's other things too, like you go off course, something like mm-hmm. that. It's like you go five miles off course. You can look at that as like, um, do I stop here and salvage my training block for a different race closer than I would be able to if I finished? Uh, you know, there's things like that too. And I think as a sport gets more competitive too, you just see a little more of that, especially from the top, top end part of the field, because, mm. You know, people are are racing for contracts. They're racing yeah. for staying to stay in the sport to legitimize that lifestyle. And you know, if someone goes into the season thinking, "Well, I need three good races this year in order to justify my contract or something like that," then you know, they may sign up for six, hoping three of them work out. And when one clearly isn't, they you know salvage the season by stopping there. So that type of stuff, but. Um, I think really the best way to go about these races for most people is you want to go in with more than one goal, because mm. if you go in there with an A goal and the A goal falls off the table, then you're probably going to drop out earlier than you really needed to or really should. Uh, but if you go in there with like two or three potential goals, then you can kind of be a little more pragmatic about it and say like, okay, as long as one of these three goals is still on the table, I'm going to stick it out. But if those three fall off the table, then I've determined ahead of time it's just not worth it to keep going for whatever reason. And that's just personal probably. Like, that's where I guess I, I struggle the most with this particular topic is mm. to me this is always an individual. Like I would never be inclined to tell someone, oh, yeah, you should have just suffered longer. Because, <laughs> I mean, like if they feel like if they're not any worse for the wear by calling it a day – I mean, who am I to tell them otherwise? Uh, so I guess that's kind of my my view on that. Um, I think as well, for, because, you know, as we're getting these these massive distances. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it so can be hard. frustrating for the people watching the sport, maybe sometimes too, if they're watching it to try to see like these big breakthrough performances and you have a field where there's like, say, five or six guys and five and six, five or six gals who are like, potentially able to win the race they want to see this epic throwdown mm. and if four of the five drop out then it's like you kind of the wind is out of the sail from the spectating side a little bit so i think there's a little bit of that too that mm. that can kind of drive the conversation a bit and also the for, uh, for the majority of the people who do these longer races not dnfing 
for a lot of them is the A goal. And so that's the mentality because if you've never done something like Western States before or mm-hmm. UTMB and, and you're, you're unlikely to ever get another place because of the lottery, then actually the time isn't that important because you've got no frame of reference. It's the same mm-hmm. with the position and it's so weather dependent. So I think because of the, the, the mentality of previous, um, but before it's become more competitive, where people are thinking about times, DNF was for most people the goal. And so I think there is, so not DNF is, is the goal, which I think is where this pressure's come from really into the sport. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point too, because when when someone says they're doing their first hundred miler ever, mm. uh, I mean, minus like long term issues coming up from sticking it out, I think it's good to finish it, and that should mm. be your goal, really. Mm. At the end of the day, like when I'm working with someone running their first hundred mile, a lot of times when we start looking at what they're capable of, we try to recenter about, hey, the number one goal today is just to finish this and experience what it is like to move a hundred miles. Um, within the parameters of this event because you can carry that forward Mm. and I think that's valuable because then the next time you do it you have a bit more of a point of reference of like this is kind of the the scale of the day in terms of kind of how I feel and where my mind goes throughout various points and I think one of the best examples of that is probably uh, uh, Jim Walmsley when he ran Western States the first time in 2016 Uh, I mean he was just crushing it all day long and then he went off course and ultimately found out where he was supposed to be but had hemorrhaged a couple hours at that point you know for him to drop there it probably wouldn't have been that big of a deal uh from an onlooker i mean they they could see like why he would do that but he walked he walked all the way to the finish from there uh and i can't remember what his finishing time actually was but for in his mind he was like well this is my first hundred miler um, I need to get one on the scoreboard, so to speak, so that when I come back here to do this next year, I do another 100 miler. I can tell myself, you've done 100 miles before. That box is checked. Now let's see how mm. fast I can do it. Um, and so, that's really interesting because, as you say, that is he's already thinking of the next race and actually he's already drawing positives from a negative situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it uh, – I think that carries over too. So like, you know, you see people who run with him or train with him who like, uh, or follow him and, you know, they see that and their, their thought is like, okay, that's the, that's a good strategy. That's not a bad idea to just, you know, take your, take your licking, so to speak, even though Mm. it's not your day and, and then move on and grow from that versus, you know, looking at it as a big failure. Uh, so I think that's, I think it's one of those, it's a case by case question when it comes to DNFing, I think, but, uh, and there's, there's never, I think there's sometimes a clear right or wrong answer, but a lot of it ends up being gray area and down to the individual's kind of personal views of it. Mm. So, um, where next for you then? You've mentioned, you've hinted a little bit that you, you still think there's some meat on the bones. So is the focus still hundred mile record? Yeah, I'll, I'll do another one. I don't know when. Uh, the way I've liked, and, and I actually think part of the reason why I was able to get it this last go versus maybe some other ones is mm. when I first started doing it, that became kind of like almost a season-long venture where I would do other races, but really my fitness was angled towards being kind of ready to take advantage of opportunities on these flat 100 miles. 
Whereas the last couple seasons, I've essentially kind of said, I'll dedicate half a year to some flat, fast stuff, but I'm going to dedicate the other half of the year to some more trail-based stuff, some more um, climbing and descending type courses. And uh, part of that's just because now where I live, I've got access to everything essentially. So I can pick a lot more race courses and feel good about the train I'm preparing for them on. Mm. Uh, But the other part of it is just like, at some point, sometimes you just need to step away for a little bit and get excited about it again. So I'm definitely excited about doing another 100 mile, fast 100 miler, but to motivate yourself to really enjoy and hit the training home, I think it's good to take some time away from that particular Mm -hmm. event and do something else. And then when you start back up, you're kind of just like itching to get going at that. So uh, that's kind of how I structured this year and it worked out very well. I spent the first half of the year more or less preparing for the San Diego 100 and when I finished that, then I started kind of getting back into the flat running type stuff. The the interesting thing was when I had that plan laid out at the beginning of the year, the goal race for this second half of the year is the Spartathlon over in Greece, which for your listeners, they're not familiar. It's a 153-mile race from Athens to Sparta over a kind of more or less rolling roads in yeah. some gravel sections. Um, so that's where I was. And that fit my timeline nicely. It gave me enough. It gave me a traditionally adequate window of time to kind of go through the full scale of training like i described earlier the the interesting thing is like the the nature of this event i did at the pettit center was they were kind of scrambling a bit to get it in place because they were waiting on the world 24-hour championships to pick a time and location and they didn't want to necessarily like butt up against that so they waited to confirm this event until they knew when the 24 hours would be Hmm. so they un- ended up pinning down the the weekend that that I did the race, but I found out about it, I think, like in early July. So it left me with a condensed window, like an eight-week window, and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to turn things around quick enough to be ready for it. So it wasn't really until I got into that last training block where I realized that I was fit enough to really take an honest swing at it. Um, but with that said, I have the Spartathlon on the schedule still, so that's in uh, two and a half weeks, uh, I think two and a half weeks. So uh, I'm planning on being there and planning on competing, but it's going to be a bit of a exercise in recovery and balance between now and then to kind of get excited to do it. So Mm. uh, I've got my fingers crossed. (laughs) Well, good luck with the Spartathlon. It is a beast and a half. And good luck with trying to take that record under 11 hours. Um, if if Dubads want to to follow you and to kind of track your progress, what's the best way for them to kind of see what you're doing on social media? Yeah, so they can link over to pretty much anything that I do for my website at zachbetter.com. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. My Instagram handle is at zachbetter, and my Twitter handle is at zbitter. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really interesting. Congratulations again on what is an epic, epic time. And uh, well, we wish you all the best in the future. Yeah, thanks a bunch for having me on, David. It was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thanks, Zach. All the best. Bye. Bye bye. Ooh. Crikey, O'Reilly. What I like, what I like is when someone like smashes a record. For them to come on and say, yeah, I could have done better. <laughs> I can go faster. 20 minutes. 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah, I can go far. I can, I can knock 20 minutes off that easily. I like that. It's like, it's almost like the reverse of going, yeah, I could have won this if I tried. 
but you know, I decided in the end because of injury, because of everything else, you know, I relaxed. But if I'd have tried, I could have won it. It's just like the the, the extreme version of that. Oh, I could I could have, I could have smashed another twenty minutes off this if it, if it. I mean, that's a difficult situation to be in with um, other mm. people on the track, uh, and also um, a track that's not it's not primary use is 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 for that as well. That you know, it's yeah. a lot of difficult to run. It, but because in some ways, um, like the bigger, it also depends what shape that track is. Because actually, the bigger a track is, the nicer the angle because you've got a less tight turn. Right. But it, just thinking of the um, the geometry of it, but it, it's probably a really weird shaped track. Even the fact it's bigger, it's probably fatter rather than longer because our track <laughs> yeah our tracks are made for 100 meter sprints yeah and then they you know loop off at the end whereas their tracks for for a pitch that i doubt it's 100 meters long or you know even with the extended so it might be it's a lot fatter which then actually it means it's constant bend whereas if you were hit, if you were on a normal track you'd almost save the overtaking for the straight so you're not taking an extra distance whereas there might be less straight right but yeah it- absolutely absolutely that's it the thing is i i've only just started running on a track and so yeah. i've only only just started appreciating uh how how odd it is when you first start doing it <laughs> uh, about it. well it's just it's just weird isn't it? you're just running around a track and you're kind oh, of yeah. like because you're trying, you know, it will speed work as well. So, yeah. I mean, if you're kind of like jogging around, it's just, it's just a weird experience. It's a weird thing to do. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive as a human to be mm. running around the same <laughs> thing again and again. It's like evolution didn't, uh, didn't build us for that. And the mental batters are even so on Tuesday, it's the end of summer, winter's coming, cross country marathon training. We were doing 1200 meter reps. Oh my God. Just mentally, like three times a track, around, around the track for each lap, for each rep. You're like, I'm so bored. And, <laughs> and that's the thing, he's doing his training runs on a track. That, but that's the really interesting thing. That it's saying that the training runs aren't about uh, speed. They're about the mental aspect to it, mm. which is really, really interesting. I just, what, I, I, what he's done is amazing. I just, I can't, I just it's just one of those things that I just can't even imagine. I like why it's great that he's hit those times and stuff like that. And he's pushing it to like the kind of the, like the limit, but just running around on a track for that amount of time. But he's, he's so off on his own in, in as a, as a runner really, because we were just thinking about like when, when Ali did what 21 hours or I think or something like that, you're like, bloody hell, that's amazing. And Ultra is so far removed from fast these days. Yeah, yeah. You know, people are talking about how at the last UTMB, you know, the uh, the female winner went out. So the male winner went out fast, and it's not fast, because, like compared to these times, because actually all ultra running, like all the Centurion races, South Downs Way, North Downs Way, um, comrades, four thousand meters of ascent, and actually none of us when we're doing these ultras are actually running flat on a good surface it's no, no, even, even even like thames path which is is mm. probably the flattest you're going to get even that is um you know it's not it, it's not a running track 
<laughs> yeah certainly not a running track and so you know you there's the I mean, the the speeds that they get to with that, the, the winners and everything, is is insane. But it, it's certainly not. It's not sub twelve. No, no. <laughs> I mean, no, it's not sub twelve. Fourteen, fifteen hours. Yeah, maybe, maybe high thirteens. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, but the, God, it's just what I just the idea of running that fast for that long. Oh yeah, and that's the thing—the fact that he's um, was it six forty pace when he's so actually. So th- this is this is what amazed me. Um, th- this story. Have you ever heard of Cavin uh, Woodward? No. So what is this that? Is, is that a person? Yeah, I mean, is that a real name? That's amazing. Cavin Woodward. Maybe it's like maybe it's a typo for Calvin. Let's Google it. Um, <laughs> the idea yeah maybe they <laughs> ran out of letters <laughs> they couldn't read I mean, the handwriting they did it wrong with the birth certificate yeah it's Kevin Woodward Kevin so, um, great name so he used to have the 100 mile record back in 1970 75 76 something like that yeah what I love about it so his record was 11 38 54 um, before before the Russians dubious <laughs> <laughs> But um, actually, I have no idea whether the old, the old ones is seen as being uh, legit or not. Probably is legit. But um, yeah, so he he did eleven thirty eight, and like it's a classic old boy racing. So his first mile, uh, let's have it, I'm just reminding myself, first mile five nineteen. Right. So if you think Zach's averaging what just under seven minute miles. His uh, his first mile was five nineteen, so he came through fifty miles, so halfway in four fifty eight. <laughs> so suddenly <laughs> an hour pace, and then he he hung on for the next fifty miles in six forty. I mean, that used to be the world record, like the most insane pacing. I'm just gonna hang on for the second half. <laughs> It's amazing. Yes. That's what you do. That's, that's what you do in a 5K. That's like that's literally yeah. like yeah. my my 5K attempt. Like I'm going to try and hang on for the next two and a half kilometers. But it's, if I if I was fit and went for my fastest mile, I'd be probably what 453, 452. He was on 458 and 100 miles. A first mile, insane. That's what I love about it. It's, and it's not even. It's not as if we've discovered pacing. It's not, not like in 1976 and went, oh my God, what if we don't go out in sub five minute miles first mile? He must have known this at the time. But it's just classic old boy racing. Go hard or go home. That's incredible. Great. But does it make you want to, because you, you, you've obviously, you know, you've, you've, you've come almost within I would not quite touching distance, but sub 24 hour was there, you know, as an option, as a possibility. Would you consider doing a track 100 miler just for the time? Uh, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I. I Or like a looped road? Oh no, the thing is, I've been thinking about this a lot actually since since uh, training for 5K and everything, and. I think um, the, the thing that's, that's become really evident to me is that I've not pushed hard enough. Um, when I've, I've not really raced things 
Uh, if, I, if I'm really honest, I've never really crossed the line thinking I've given my all <laughs> on those things. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I'd be interested. I, I, although I, I've just said it doesn't appeal to me, I would be willing to give it a try. The uh, thing is, there must be. I don't. My my knowledge of hundred miles, the actual different ones we have, is quite limited. But there must be some hundred milers that are quick. Like, what what is the quickest one in the states? What's the quickest one in in the in Europe? Oh yeah, yeah. There's got to be absolutely. No, there are. There's certain ones that are quick because they a lot of them are things like qualifiers for um, uh, spatathlon and all yeah. that. Okay. And so and so and so there are certain ones that, that are very certain hundred Ks or hundred milers that But are, even a, even one with like a ten mile loop around a lake or, or similar to that that's flat, something like that. I I think Yeah. But that's I think, enough of a distance that it's not the same as running around a track. Yeah, I just I, the, the the element of running around the track is part of me thinks like why bother? But then I part of me thinks it, it must it's just very, very different. Um because and we've talked about this before about how you kind of have all the support there that you can go to the toilet when you mm. it's, it's kind of like convenient um and it's and i think it's definitely more of a mental thing as well and so the yeah. only reason i'd want to do it is for that mental aspect of it just to see how how you cope yeah um, and i think i think definitely running on a track i think i'd be able to push under 24 hours now and uh, the, the, the weight i think i'd be able to push under 24 hours now on a 100 miler uh, any you know in the south downs where thames path if i if i did that now um mm. but but yeah i i would be interested in doing it just to see um but I'm, i tell you what i'm not gonna do i'm not gonna train on a track for it <laughs> i know I, I mean i'm gonna make that the only time i run that out of the distance on a track it's like what mike human but what about you Are you would you be interested in doing that I, and I, I, would, I think I would for the experience, and it's two reasons. I think one for the experience, three reasons. One for the experience, because um, as you say, I, I just I'd like to go through that level of boredom. I think it's it's got to be good for you as a person, just to have mind control to do, to get through something like that. But also, obviously, I'm a massive bell end where I'd love to have as fast a time as possible. <laughs> Um, so, so that... I don't. I don't think you should do it as your first hundred miler, though. I definitely don't. <laughs> no, because no, I don't. Because I don't think it's a. It, I don't think. I think it's better to do like a, a sort of a traditional hundred miler on the trail, uh, simply because I think that is a very unique experience when you first do it, and I think yeah. then you do that after. But I, I do think that that. I think it's safe to do, but I think if you, if you're first hundred mile, certainly not because I don't think. It and also, be- I'd, I'd want the aid stations. I'd want the do bad stops. And yeah, exactly, exactly. But I mean, also, that, what I'd love on a hundred mile is that we could you could have a do bad station, but just think about every lap. Every lap. Every lap. They'd be great for the first hour, and then <laughs> and then they'd be miserable. And what I like is that they'd kind of DNF it, or they'd be absolutely hammered, and they'd just be like passed out. And, and was it streaking across the track while you're trying to run yeah <laughs> but the, the the other reason i'd quite like to do it is mike um mike stocks who runs with heath sides he's uh he's in the i think he qualified for the gb 24 hour team um if i could get a faster 100 mile time than him he'd be so he'd be so annoyed because he's, he's a better runner than me and and even when he ran uh thames path 100 and set a time 
I was then talking about potentially doing um, autumn 100s before I got injured and yeah, got distracted. And even when he found out I was going to be doing that, because we've got a little uh, comrades group from us lot who all went to comrades together, he, yeah. he instantly was like, oh, just so you know, that's four miles less than the Thames Path 100 in case you get a quicker time than me. So he clearly doesn't uh... want me to get a quicker time than him. And I, I think he's done some very quick 100 milers on the track, but I think that's been part of a 24-hour race rather than just focusing on that 100-mile track time. So, um, ah, it would be, it would just be great. I wouldn't mention I'm doing it, although I just have now. Uh, but yeah, just to be, drop it in like the Heathside newsletter or something <laughs> like that. See, see how long it took him to like message going, yeah, well, you know, we know well, I ended mine in a... <laughs> yeah, but, but that's, but that's, that's the thing though, because then you start the excuses. You'll be like, yeah, but it's a track hundred miler. Or it's a, oh yeah, or it's a, you know, it's a different mm. type of trail hundred miler. Or it's a, it's a, it's a hundred miler altitude or something like that. There's, there's all, all sorts of ways you get around that. Yeah, and and that's the thing. He's, it's not like we're rivals because he is just better than me. But I'm close enough that I could close enough like, to taunt him. <laughs> yeah, close close enough that he's like, mm, I don't want people thinking I'm not better than Hellard. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when he's, we're close enough, but there's an, there's enough of a difference that we are like slightly different grades of runners. Yeah. So you you wouldn't want someone thinking, oh, you're you're kind of the speed of hell. I was like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm better. That one time, that one time. So I just want to have a one one time to be able to piss him off uh, in the loveliest way, of course, in the loveliest way. Um, wow, what an episode! Nice one, nice one. Good good interviewing skills again, David. Oh, thank you. Thanks. And uh, just trying to think of other good episodes. So Robbie Britton did a really interesting one. He talked about Spartathlon, but he was talking about doing the 100 mile uh, world championship. So that's a great one to listen to. Um, we should get Dan Lawson back on. We need to talk yeah. to him about his thousand mile. Uh, sorry, thousand. Yeah, thousand mile hey, run. We need to talk to him about actual running this time, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to T-shirts. Just a ball of rage about Nike trainers. Yeah, true, true. Um, obviously, Camille Heron, 100 Camille, mile yeah, absolutely. Uh, unbelievable. There's, there's two episodes on that. Either one of them, brilliant. And, you know, she's got some amazing training advice that you will not hear anywhere else that actually is a secret that she lets on to us. We won't tell you what it is. Uh, any, any others you'd recommend? I think those are the key ones. I was thinking of the Robbie Britton one as well, because yeah, his experience of it. And that's one of the, that's one of our early interviews as well, wasn't it? So, and he's, he's just a great guest, a great guy, great guests. Uh, in fact, they all are, all those three. But do bad as we have got some unbelievably good people coming on quite soon. Um, really interesting. The, t- the trouble is we can't, I never like to, say what it is because that doesn't happen we've got we've got ben <laughs> ben what's his name ben greenfield coming on soon is that his name yes. <laughs> the imminent the imminent ben greenfield episode <laughs> who else stood up repeatedly the gut doctor we're doing the gut doctor episode the gut doctor, the gut, yeah the gut yeah. doctor yeah. Um, he wanted to, he wanted to delay till the release of their book which yeah that, that yeah so it's coming out next week but we're we're hopefully if we can throw out the technology going to be interviewing the uh the coach for a running club based in one of the hardest penitentiaries in california um so that should be great we are potentially going to be interviewing i don't know how this is happening i don't know why this is happening <laughs> potentially interviewing um 
a band who have had several number ones and a, you know, a current band in, in the actual charts not like in the country charts or in the classical charts or in a chart you've never heard of yeah and, and actual... we've, we've already we've already had a discussion like should we be doing this like what are we gonna talk about but turns out he runs yeah i mean who cares yeah we'll, we'll take it because it'll just be we'll ask him some really hard questions that he'll just be like no i've never done that no <laughs> and um yeah and we've got well stay tuned listeners basically and you know running clubs up and running so um by now the merch the merch won't be out yet <laughs> <laughs> the merch won't be out no 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 and uh, we've got to remember to join as well oh we do we do uh, part of me loves not being in the club though what <laughs> being presidents of the club <laughs> yet still not being part of it that is yeah. ultimate do battery ultimate do battery and um i've got lots of stories that i wanted to tell here but this is the roundup one and there's a bit of a teaser i've been sent something which i'll reveal i some <laughs> dude out there thinks it's hilarious to send stuff to me as miss jody it uh, it's, it's 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 disgusting what they've sent um but i'll reveal all of the next podcast yeah so thanks for listening guys uh, letters at badboyrunning.com if you want us to interview anyone tag tag me in a post on facebook or just spam me and uh, again the facebook group to hear more stories and stupidity yeah and if you like this episode or other episodes then go to itunes and subscribe rate and review us and that would be incredible thank you do badders yeah we'll see you next week see you later bye 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 Admit I was a clone to be messing around But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town Come back Yes, and give me one more try Cause a love like this should I never ever die Come back Fuck you, buddy Oh, there's a, actually there was one in this uh, Things to do in 100 milers Yeah I should, Oh, we should have got to Because it actually was something that I'd done Christina Peterson Wearing new, new brand shoes. Of shoes, like switch from ultras to hokers. You could go big and wear all new untested gear. And then I've written, what kind of idiot would wear a new brand of shoes on a hundred miler? <laughs> Ooh, did it tear your feet out? Because you've got yeah. soft feet. Yeah, yeah, it did tear my feet out.